So we've discussed hitherto how when Moshe gave us the Torah, it was given to us in two distinct formats. We have a written Torah, which is, of course, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moshe, and we have the oral Torah, which is the companion, and these two together give us Torah. And that is the way it was, essentially, for 1,500 years, a written Torah, an oral Torah, an entire system in which the oral Torah is perpetuated, and things were great. Fast forward to today, much of the oral Torah has been committed to writing. Much of it has been canonized. And the first effort on that front was the canonization of the Mishnah around the year 200 of the Common Era. And that's going to be the subject of today. And to understand this huge development, we have to ask, of course, some basic questions. What is the Mishnah? What is it comprised of? Who wrote it? How was it written? When was it written? Why was it written? And why essentially did we transition from a system, the way it was given to us by the Almighty via Moshe, where we have written Torah and oral Torah, and suddenly things are changing. So by way of introduction, let us read the Rambam's introduction to his magnum opus, the Yada Chazaka, alternatively called the Mishnah Torah. Now, this introduction is a useful primer on the writing of oral Torah in general because the Rambam's work, he places it as the next stage of the codification of oral Torah. So, again, we have oral Torah, complete oral Torah, entirely oral. And that's the way it starts off and that's the way it is maintained for 1,500 years. And then we have little bits of oral Torah or maybe big bits of oral Torah, that are canonized over the course of the ensuing centuries. We have the Mishnah, and then we have the Talmud, and then we have this continuous ongoing process of codification of Halacha, and maybe even of Kabbalah. The Rambam understands his work, or presents his work, as the authoritative work of Halacha, and he presents it as the next stage of the writing of oral Torah, so therefore when he introduces it, he gives the whole backstory of the writing of the Oral Torah. So he tells us as follows. Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the Mishnah. From the time of Moshe, our teacher, no one had written a work from which the Oral Torah was publicly taught. Rather, in each generation, the head of the court or the prophet of the time wrote down for his private use notes on the traditions he had heard from his teachers, but he taught publicly by heart, from memory. It would be inaccurate to say that the Mishnah was the first time the oral Torah was written down. What the Ramam tells us over here is that no, the oral Torah was written down, but it was never codified and disseminated for public use, and it was never taught publicly from a book, from a written, a written corpus. So to each individual wrote down, according to his ability, parts of the explanation of the Torah and of its laws that he had heard, as well as the new matters that developed in each generation, which had not been received by tradition, but had been deduced using the 13 principles of derivation. And this is the way it was until the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he, namely Rabbi Judah the Prince, he gathered 
all the teachings and all the traditions and all the laws and all the clarifications and all the explanations that were heard from Moshe and that were taught in the Sanhedrin of each generation in the entire Torah. And he composed from all of these a book of Mishnah and he taught it to many sages and he revealed it to all of Israel and it was disseminated throughout each locale in order that Torah should not be forgotten from the Jewish people. And why? Why did Rabbi Judah Prince choose to do that? Why did he not keep things as they were? Because he saw that the students were becoming fewer and fewer, and calamities were continually happening, and the wicked government, i.e. the Roman government, was extending its rogue domain and increasing its power, and the Jews were wandering and reaching remote places. He thus wrote a work to serve as a handbook for all, so that it could be rapidly studied and it would not be forgotten. And throughout his life, he and his court continued giving public instruction in the Mishnah. So this marks a dramatic shift in the way our nation is going to operate. For 1,500 years, we have the oral Torah entirely oral, and now a large part of it is going to be canonized and written and written in a finalized format. And there's a major problem with this. The problem is, is that there is a prohibition against the writing of the Oral Torah. The verse tells us where God tells Moshe, write down these words. And a second verse says, God tells Moshe, teach these words orally. So which one is it? Is Moshe told to write things down or is he told to convey them orally? Says the Talmud, this is to inform you that the oral Torah, you are prohibited to write. And the written Torah, you are prohibited to say it over without reading from the book. We have a written book, and that must remain written. And if you want to read the the written Torah, you must read it from the book. And we have an oral Torah, and that must remain oral. And if you want to teach the oral Torah, you have to teach it orally. These are two distinct formats, and they have to remain as such. And that's based upon a verse in the Torah. You cannot write it down. And our sages tell us that there were a lot of very good reasons why the oral Torah should not be written down. Number one, the Talmud itself says this, it's impossible to write it all down. The Torah is infinite, and the Torah is dynamic. And trying to encapsulate it all would be impossible. Moreover, when something is conveyed orally, it's a more accurate form of instruction. We've given this example in the past, how we have the Constitution written relatively recently and written with the express intent that it be understood by future generations, yet today... There is so much opacity and so much uncertainty and so many questions and so many challenges to a very short document. And again, we have a document written by very intelligent people with the explicit understanding or intent that it be understood by future generations. And now we're 100 years, 200 years, 250 years away from it, and we can't even agree on what the words even mean. 
And that's the problem. You have a written text. It could be a perfect text, but it's going to be subject to misinterpretation. You know, today, everything is moving online. People are not going to university. Everyone's watching Zoom classes. But the question that I have is, why do you even need to learn from an instructor? Just read it all in a book. The answer is, is that when you hear instruction and you hear it from a different person and you hear it verbally and you hear it from someone's vocal cords and how they express their ideas, that is a more clear form of communication. You know, if you read a transcript and you try to compare that to actually listening to a speech or a lecture, it's a totally different experience because when you say words, you're saying much more than just words. You're conveying emotion. You're giving inflection. You're couching and presenting and pausing in ways that humans understand on a much deeper level. And there's another deep point here. When I teach an oral Torah law, I'm conveying a law and I'm conveying a principle. And that's the way it's always done. And you could take the same principle and apply it in many different ways. The principles are much more fluid and malleable and dynamic, whereas the laws themselves are much more rigid. So, for example, when you want to learn the laws of blessings, what blessing to say in a certain food? Do you make a blessing of hamotzi on pizza or do you make a blessing of mizonos on pizza? Well, let's look in the Talmud. Let's go to the uh, index and see where the Talmud talks about pizza. Well, the answer is the Talmud doesn't talk about pizza. The Talmud talks about all kinds of other extinct foods that you've never eaten because they're not around anymore and they were the staples of 2,000 years ago. And that's a problem. The problem is, is that we are trying to extrapolate the principle that are couched in examples that are no longer extant. If the oral Torah was forever maintained orally, you wouldn't have as much of a problem because the laws would always adapt as new foods and as new technologies are invented, are made available. There's a lot of laws that deal with damages, interpersonal damages, and many of them involve oxen goring each other. Why? Because if you had a farm and you had oxen and the oxen went wild, you'd have to know how to pay for that. But again, we have to try to extrapolate principles out of laws that are fixed because that's what happens when you write things down. So again, this is the drawback of writing things down. We are actually living that. Moreover, our sages tell us that the oral Torah was ours and ours alone. Once you write something down, it becomes accessible to anyone. And one of the reasons why the oral Torah was maintained orally is so that the Gentiles should not get their hands on it. And in fact, the day that the Torah was translated, the day that the Septuagint was written, that is considered a day of mourning in the Jewish calendar. And making the oral Torah available to the Gentiles has brought us mostly grief and suffering and repression. You Google the Talmud and you see all these crazy websites or conspiracy theories 
finding all these terrible things in the Talmud, of course, taken out of context, people that don't, don't even know how to read Hebrew. The second we have the oral Torah traditions committed to paper, it's now fair game for anyone who wants to grab it. Also, if you make study easier, you would think it's better, right? It's easier after all. More people have access to it. Maybe not. We are supposed to have a relationship with Torah. And the harder you work to earn something, the more of a connection you develop with that thing. And therefore, when it's made easier, there is something lost because now anyone can have access to it because it's written down. You don't have to invest so much time. And maybe now we'll have a harder time figuring out who's a real sage and who's a charlatan. I always say, if you want to know if someone's a real Torah scholar, ask them the question, a Torah question on Shabbos. Because on Shabbos, you can't Google the answer. And similarly, if you had an entirely oral Torah, the only way for someone to be a real expert is if they invested the time to do it. And they would spend 14, 15, 18, 20 years immersed in study full time. And then they would become a real expert. And they would have a community and then have a relationship with teachers. And they would be a bona fide sage. Today, it's possible for someone to spend a lot of time on one piece of Talmud and study that, become an expert of that, and be ignorant in every other matter. And if you happen to ask him a question of that, he'll say, oh my gosh, this guy's a real sage. He's a real scholar. But maybe he isn't. And also, you know, you look at the Jewish bookshelf, the Jewish library, and you see, okay, 63 books of Mishnah. And you see, okay, let's have, you know, there's around 40 books of Talmud. But then there's a Babylonian Talmud, there's a Jerusalem Talmud. Oh, but that's just the beginning. You have 22 books of the Tur, which is one of the books of the the medieval sages who wrote Halacha. And you have the 40 books of the Rambam. And you have innumerable books of Halacha. It's a little overwhelming. What if you want to start small? When you have oral instruction, it's almost easier in a way because it enables incremental learning. It lets the students scale up. Now you have a young child who walks into the library And it's a little bit overwhelming. There is such voluminous information, it's a little bit hard to dip your toe in it. So there's a lot of very good reasons why the oral Torah was maintained in oral fashion. Comes along Rabbi Judah the Prince, and he organizes this monumental decades-long project, really generations-long project, to codify the Mishnah. Isn't it prohibited by Torah law? How did he do it? So the answer is that because he sensed that all of Torah was at risk of being forgotten, there is a principle based upon a verse in Psalms, it's a time of action for God, when the Torah itself is at risk of being forgotten, it's better to violate one small law than to lose the entirety of Torah. The Ramam explains it. It's better to amputate 
one limb than to lose the entire life. And there's other examples of this as well, like Elijah, for example, violates one Torah law of making a private altar on Mount Carmel to try to save the entirety of the Jewish people. Rabbi Judah the Prince sensed that unless something drastic was undertaken, unless significant action and change were adopted, the Jewish nation would cease to exist. And he was someone who was the Nasi. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the political and religious leader of the Jewish people. He was also someone, in the words of the Talmud, he had a unique distinction that since the times of Moshe, until him, there was no one like that. Only Moshe and Rabbi Judah the Prince, and subsequently Rav Ashi, who organized the Talmud, these three people alone had the distinction of Torah Vigdula B'Makramechad. They had Torah greatness, political and financial greatness, all wrapped up in one. Moshe was the wealthiest Jew and the greatest sage. Rabbi Judah the Prince, the wealthiest, most politically powerful Jew, oh, and the greatest sage as well. So there's a unique opportunity here that was seized around the year 200 to write down the Mishnah. So what exactly is the Mishnah? It's a succinct organization of oral Torah. More specifically, it is a collection of 63 books that give you like a digest of the laws of oral Torah. And it is organized to perfection. You have six orders of Mishnah, six general categories of Mishnah. The first one is Zura'im, which means plants or seeds, that deals with the agricultural laws, and that has 11 separate books in it. It has the book of Brachos, which talks about blessings and prayers. We have Peya, which deals with the corner of the field that you have to leave to the poor. Demai, when there is a question on produce, whether tithes were taken from it or not, what's the law then? We have Kilayim. Kilayim means mixtures. You can't mix wool and linen. You can't mix different animals to plow a field. You can't mix different seeds. The book of Shavias, which deals with Shemitah. The book of Trumos, which deals with the tithe that has to go to the Kohen. Masros, that has to deal with the tithes that go to the Levite. Maishosheni is the personal tithe that someone eats in Jerusalem. Chala is the portion of the dough that goes to the Kohen. Arla is the first three years of a fruit tree. And Bikurim is the laws related to the first fruits that are brought to Jerusalem and given to the Kohen. So these 11 books comprise the first order of Mishnah that generally deals with agriculture and the laws related to agriculture and tithing. And then we have the next section, which is Moed. And Moed deals with all the festivals and special days. So there's a book of Shabbos and a book on Pesach and a book on Sukkot and a book on Rosh Hashanah and a book on Yom Kippur, a book on Purim, a book on holidays in general, etc. And then you have the next section, which deals with marriage and divorce, seven books on that. And then you have the next section that deals with 
interpersonal damages and monetary laws and courts and jurisprudence and the like, and it has 10 books in that section. And then the fifth section deals with sacrifices, 11 different books on the various laws of sacrifices. And finally, the final order of the Mishnah, Taharos, deals with purity and impurity and the myriad laws related to that. So we have essentially all of Torah, all of the laws of Torah, organized into these 63 books, broken down into six sections, six general sections, and written with such mastery and such beauty that generations have marveled on it. The Rambam says, Rabbi Judah the Prince was the most gifted writer of the Hebrew language of all. And this is a tremendously collaborative effort. We have a collection of teachings and traditions of hundreds of rabbis over many centuries. And we have Rabbi Judah the Prince who has been exposed to all different kinds of schools. He was someone who spent time studying under many different sages to be able to create this effort to unite the various different schools of thought into one Mishnah. In fact, as a very young child, he was sent to various different academies to be able to absorb the tradition and the flavor of each academy to be able to incorporate that into the Mishnah. But again, he was someone who had incredible wealth, power, and influence. And the Talmud even tells us that he was best buds with the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. And he was also someone, thanks to his incredible wealth, he was able to be a benefactor of many sages. And he spends 50 years compiling, redacting, organizing, editing, polishing, perfecting the 63-book corpus of the Mishnah, together with all the greatest sages of the land. They all come to him, they all coalesce on him, and him, as at the head of the Sanhedrin, changes Jewish history forever. Now, how exactly he did it is a really fascinating question. So for one, he didn't start with nothing. Like we said earlier, there were many books of oral Torah. Every sage kept a book. It was just not taught publicly. It wasn't canonized. But he gathers all these books. And he's able to kind of organize and, and, and edit them in a way that he's incorporating all their teachings. But creating a uniform style. So some of the books, in fact, there's one book that was completely written by an earlier sage, about 100 years prior, and he just entered that book in unedited, completely the way it was. It was done such so perfectly. The book of Midos, which deals with the dimensions of the temple, that work was done so perfectly, he just incorporated it into the finalized book of Mishnah. There were other books of previous sages that are referenced in the Mishnah. The Talmud, in fact, sometimes talks about the Mishnah Rishonah, the earlier Mishnah. What it's indicating is that sometimes there is a work in the finalized Mishnah 
that actually was sourced from an earlier sage. The Talmud, for example, tells us that the first three Mishnas, the first three Mishnaic laws in the book of Bavar Kama, they're very unique because they were written by a Jerusalemite sage. And the sages from Jerusalem, they had written with such brevity, with such a unique terse style, and Rabbi Judah the Prince decided to include those three Mishnahs in the finalized book of Mishnah. And that's why, says the Talmud, if it's a little bit of a different style, it's because it was sourced from this Jerusalem sage. Now, just as a trivia, Rabbi Judah the Prince is in northern Israel. And this is after the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is really bereft of any sages. This was a much earlier Jerusalem uh, sage that, that taught it. When the Mishnah talks about the temple... It talks about the temple and the curtains on the temple entrance. And the problem is that in the temple, there weren't any curtains. The curtains were only part of the Mishkan of the tabernacle that Moshe did. And our sages tell us that actually this particular Mishnah and this formulation actually originates from the times of Moshe and that was also included in the final Mishnah. So what do we have? We have a tremendously collaborative effort. Rabbi Judah the Prince is incorporating hundreds of different sages and different schools. He is taking some works that were finalized by earlier sages, including them verbatim. Some of them he's just referencing. Some of them he's editing to conform with his unique style. Some are just kept as is. And the result is an absolute masterpiece. You have all of oral Torah in the clearest, most lucid writing in beautiful Hebrew. Every word full of insights and laws and secrets. Our sages are unanimous that this must have been written with divine assistance. And we have a finalized work. The first component, the first segment of oral Torah has been codified. Now, there's something really interesting about the Mishnah. Again, the oral Torah was supposed to be oral. It was only allowed to be committed to a finalized writing because of the fear of it being forgotten. Ergo, it was only allowed to be written in order to prevent it from being forgotten. So what was allowed to be written? The absolute minimum. You kind of wonder, you know, we have a, a Mishnah and then we have a Talmud. And the Talmud is an elaboration of the Mishnah. So if you write down the oral Torah, why do you have both a Mishnah and a Talmud? And the answer is because Rabbi Judah the Prince, he wanted to curb the danger, so to speak, at the barest of minimums. So he just writes down the laws, but he keeps everything else that relates to oral Torah, he keeps that oral. He only wrote down what was necessary. Later, 300 years later, another decision was made to codify the Talmud as well. So there's an interesting example of how this plays out. The Talmud, when it analyzes the Mishnah, sometimes it says the following quizzical statement. It declares that the Mishnah is lacking Words. It's missing words. 
which is very strange. You know, Bajur the prince did a great job. Says the Talmud, no, this particular Mishnah is chisuri michsara. It's missing words. It's deficient in words. And you have to add more words. Now, why would Rabbi Judah the Prince write a mission in a way that's missing words? It's kind of really bizarre. And the answer is that he was so determined to write as few words as possible that whenever he was able to eliminate words, but eliminate the words in a way that a future student would necessarily understand that there was something missing here and will be able to kind of fill the gap by themselves. In that case, he would actually take out those words because he wasn't permitted to write them. How could you write oral Torah unless it's necessary? So again, the Talmud, you read the Talmud and it's kind of bizarre. The Talmud is like pulling out all these things from the, from the Mishnah and saying, wait, why does it say it like this? Why does it say it like that? Why does it add this word? Why does it not include this word? Why was Rabbi Judah the Prince not more clear in the Mishnah? And the answer is that that was by design. He wanted to write it in a way that maintains the flavor and the style of oral Torah. So he only writes down the Mishnah. And he writes it in a way that necessitates that you study with a teacher. It's there to give you context. It's there... So you can memorize it, but you still have to work really hard to gain proficiency. And even once it's written, you really still need a, a teacher. You can't just read the Mishnah and say, okay, I know all, all of oral Torah. It was written with such ingenuity that only someone who is truly an accomplished scholar can actually piece it all together. So again, we have an oral Torah supposed to be oral, not supposed to be written. And there's lots of reasons for it. And then you have the writing of this Mishnah in a way that maintains the flavor of oral Torah. Even once it's written, you still need to have the oral explanation to understand it. You still need the Talmud, so to speak. And you still have to work really hard to understand it. And you still are able to kind of get a small sense of what the law is and you could scale up from there. And you still need to have a Jewish community and you still need to have a relationship with the sages. You still need to have a lot of the infrastructure that maintained the oral Torah the way it was earlier. So I want to give an example of how this works out. Just something that I did recently with one of, uh, with one of my study groups. The Mishnah, the book of Sanhedrin, talks about a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, that, and the subject matter is, is he, is a high priest allowed to be a judge? Is he allowed to be a witness? So the Mishnah says, a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, can be a judge, can be judged, can be a witness, can be testified against. So all four things. He can judge, can be judged, can be a witness, and can have witnesses come testify against him. It's a very short, succinct Mishnah. Says the Talmud, okay, why 
do I need to be told all these? Isn't it obvious? Of course a Kohen Gadol could be a judge. So Thomas spends a whole bunch of lines trying to say, okay, well, why is that even necessary? Why did Rabbi Judah the Prince write that in the Mishnah? I would have known it if he didn't write it in the Mishnah. And again, he doesn't write things that we would know otherwise. Question number one. Now, what's really interesting, when you finish the entire Talmud, what you discover is that a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, because he is the holiest, most spiritual person in the world, really he should not be testifying by every case. There's only a very specific case where the Kohen Gadol, where the high priest testifies. Yet if you look at the Mishnah, the Mishnah organizes it in a way that it seems like he, just like he judges in every case, you would imagine he could testify in every case. And the answer is no. He judges in all cases, but he testifies in a very, very specific case, and in that case, alone. And this is, I think, a good example of the intricacy of how Mishnah was written. It was written in a way that you still definitely need oral instruction to understand it properly, but it does give you context. It does give you a framework. It does enable you to memorize essentially all of oral Torah, just the chapter headings, if you will, just the basic law. It's a way that ne- it's written in a way that necessitates oral study instruction, but this is a handbook that everyone can memorize and it can be universally accepted. And indeed, this masterpiece was universally accepted by all of Israel. And Rabbi Judah the Prince has been vindicated on all accounts in his decision to codify the oral Torah. Now, several centuries later, another decision was made. And that decision was to write down the Talmud. And the Talmud is going to elaborate very extensively on every Mishnah. And the book of Talmud, the book of Mishnah, their sister works in that you have, let's say, the Mishnah of the book of Brachos, and then you have the Talmud of the book of Brachos, because the Talmud is an elaboration of the Mishnah. It's kind of the next stage. It's like, it's saying, okay, Rabbi the Prince wrote down the laws, the barest minimum of laws. Let's explain it. Let's flesh it out, so to speak. Let's suss it out and give you a little bit more of the oral tradition in finalized writing in the Talmud. And it comes along with the Rambam. It comes along with the great medieval sages and say, okay, let's do just the next stage. Let's give you the practical bottom line of the halacha. And comes along Rabbi Yosef Karo and says, okay, let's go to the next stage. And let's actually give you just the one line of halacha. Let's organize halacha just in a way that's totally devoid of all the back and forth and all the argumentation and all the details of the Talmud. And then a really short book, but then there's more commentaries and more commentaries. And then, then, okay, well, let me do it right now. And every generation, we have the unveiling, so to speak, of more and more and more and more of oral Torah. And kind of looking back at history, you do get a flavor by kind of following the breadcrumbs of the writing down of oral Torah of just how much there is there and just how much there is still to learn and still to study. But again, we see a shift. Torah is being made more accessible on one hand. Torah is being given the bulletproof Kevlar 
to ensure that it's not going to be entirely forgotten. It's made easier, but in a way that it's still it's still the oral Torah in the way that it was originally designed with a slight change. And looking back at history, it's a very safe argument to be made that had Rabbi the Prince not done that, Torah indeed would have been forgotten. Because like we spoke about in the past, all kinds of expulsions and persecution and pogroms and horrific mistreatment of the Jewish people had happened right before Rabbi the Prince and was about to happen again after Rabbi the Prince was finished. And you have this oasis, this brief respite where everything's aligned. You have a person unmatched since Moses. Greatest age, richest, most powerful, most influential. He's best friends with the monarch. So you have this lull in hostilities, and you have all the sages converging to one place. And like we say, we say it's the product of God. He is creating the conditions to ensure that the Jewish people and that the oral Torah and Torah in general will not be forgotten from our people. My email address is, as always, rabbiwobajima.com. This was tons of fun. And I look forward to next time. And any questions and any comments are always appreciated.